friends. Welcome back to the Woodshed. This is Brother Jonathan. We're here with another great episode. We're going to talk about the great itinerant, good old George, George Whitfield, and the beginning of the Great Awakening. Hang around. We'll get started. about the Great Awakening. A lot of people are uh, speculating that we might be on the verge of another Great Awakening in the United States. I have my doubts, but hey, I'm hopeful. I think it would be a wonderful thing. They say that America now has experienced four Great Awakenings, most of them taking place in the 1800s to early 1900s. But uh and then the most recent one, they say, was in the 1960s, 1970s. And, oh, yeah, the 1960s, 1970s. That was an amazing Christian time, right? I mean, when we think about the 60s and the 70s, we think about the great revivals. Uh, you know, I think that's kind of a little oversold. Maybe some boomers writing their own history there. But the original Great Awakening begins with this guy named George Whitfield. Now, George is going to arrive to American shores. He's going to come into Georgia, and into Savannah, Georgia, is where he will see his American ministry begin. But he actually grew up in southwest England, and so he grew up there. His his mom uh, was a widowed woman who was an intaker, had a tavern. Uh, George grew up one of seven brothers and sisters and worked there in the tavern with her, until it was time for him to continue his education. There he goes off to the University of Oxford, which is a huge monumental time in his life because there he becomes friends with the Wesley brothers. And so as knowing these Wesley brothers, John and Charles, raised by Miss Susanna Wesley, all heroes in the Christian faith, Miss Susanna is the portrait of a Proverbs 31 woman. What an amazing, amazing woman. And so they're raised with Miss Susanna. John and Charles have a a great understanding of Scripture coming from their grandfathers and their father. And, uh, And so... There, George meets up with these guys, and he begins to develop this friendship. Now, he has to work his way through Oxford. He's not from money. He's not upper class. He doesn't have this um, highbrow view of himself, but rather, he's just a working class, regular old guy. And so even at, even at Oxford, he has to pay his tuition by working as a servant for his fellow classmates. He was basically a janitor, uh, a guy that took care of all the odds and ends around the college, uh, you know, uh, landscaping and, and uh, doing laundry and all kinds of various things in order just to afford to be there. But during this time, I mean, he is learning intensely. Uh, his downtime is spent with the Wesley brothers. He's reading to prisoners and preaching in the prisons and things such as that. I mean, he's very involved in that community. And so we already see the glimmers of who this guy is going to be. And upon his graduation from Oxford, he's actually ordained into the Anglican uh, into the Anglican Church as a clergyman. 
Now, the Anglican Church is the Church of England. It's Henry VIII's church. When Henry VIII couldn't get a, a, a divorce sponsored by the Pope, then he just decided to create his own church so that he could get his, uh, get his divorce endorsed or validated. And so it's already a corrupt church. It's just kind of instead of Roman Catholic, here we have the Henry VIII's British church that he founds, and, and it's already corrupt from its very foundation. It's created for corrupt reason. And so here he's ordained into it, but man, he's got a big problem with the Anglican church. So he says that the other Anglican clergy, that they're lazy, they're non-spiritual, they're just pleasure-seeking. They're in the ministry because it's an easy job. And, you know, Today, a lot of people go into ministry because it's inside, air-conditioned, there's not a lot of heavy lifting. And pastoring is a very easy job if you do it bad. And, uh, you know, if you're bad at it, then it's an easy job, you know, and it's one of those to where you don't get fired for not doing anything good. Um, you just have to make sure you don't ever do anything bad. So you never have to succeed. You just have to not fail. And a lot of people will serve 40, 50 years in ministry and never do a darn thing, but they just never mess up. And so they keep their job. And a lot of churches just kind of put up with them. And so the same, we have a lot of lazy pastors. We have a lot of non-spiritual pastors, guys who just have no depth of knowledge. They have no relationship that's visible with the Lord. Um, they have no thoughtfulness, no mindfulness. Uh, it's just kind of, you know, get through this Sunday to get to next Sunday kind of guys. And a lot of pleasure seekers. A lot of dudes who spend more time on the golf course than in prayer. A lot of guys who spend more time in movies than they do in reading or understanding uh, scripture or church history. And so it's kind of where we are today. We have corrupt churches in an entire corrupt denominations and entire corrupt movements in the American church today. But the Anglican church that, that George uh, grew up in would have been very known for their monotone sermons, uh, very watered down. They, they would have uh, pre-written the sermons, try to make them void of any controversy. They dealt a lot with obscure, uh, obscure theological concepts versus any kind of practical living or repentance or even Bible teaching. And so there wasn't a lot of point in going to church. These pre-written scripts that the pastor would get up and read and uh, then there were just kind of a constant debate and dispute among themselves. They really didn't engage the public narrative or what was going on in the nation or the world around them or what the common man was having to deal with. They just kind of dealt with their pet peeves or their little pet projects that they understood or, or that they were uh, going through with their fellow clergymen. And so George Whitfield was pretty critical of these guys. He said that they knew no more of Christianity than Mohammed or an infidel. He said they're on the same standard as a complete false religion or somebody who had no religion whatsoever. And that most of, the, most of their sermons were simply a melody of vanity and nonsense and blasphemy all jumbled together. Guys, I've sat through some of those sermons. I mean, I've listened to some of that. I completely feel where he's coming from. It's just nonsense. It's vanity. And it is blasphemy all jumbled together. 
The pastor gets up, he talks about himself, glorifies himself. He's the hero of every sermon. Well, that's vanity. And then nonsense, they bring in all kinds of secular ideas and secular references, and it's just nonsense. It doesn't make any sense. It's not even relevant. It's not even Christian, but man, they're full of it. And then blasphemy. They'll just absolutely say some of the most asinine things that you could ever hear. And you know anybody who stands up to talk for hours a week for years of their life are going to have some flubs. And they're going to have some things that they say that ain't perfect or that they'd like to get a run and start at again and try for a second time. But then there's other guys who, man, they don't know anything. They don't care. It's just the show. It's just the stage point. The scripture was nothing more than to set up a joke or to set up a a gag or, or an illustration. And that's all it is. So George sees this. And in his early ministry, even preaching in England, um, a lot of the doors of opportunity were shut off for George and uh, because he was just very bold and unapologetic in his preaching style. So a lot of people didn't want to give him a voice or a platform. They, they thought it was lowbrow. It was beneath them. It was undignified way of doing things. And so they uh, would not allow him in the pulpits. And so with that, he just went to the streets. He started preaching to the unchurched. So as the, the churched masses would gather into the cathedrals, their George would just go to the streets and start to preach to the people who did not attend service, who were not faithful, who were not Christians. Now, his open-air preaching was primarily to non-churchgoers, but he would draw thousands. His way of preaching compared to the monotone, pre-written, talk-for-a-long-time-but-say-nothing sermons of the Anglicans, George's, he was said to have preached with a great clarity, that he was full of passion, that his uh, sermons were electric. They talk about how loud his voice was, that he had this booming, loud voice that would just make people feel the words that he's saying. But he was a very small guy. He wasn't a towering, imposing figure, no big barrel chest, no rippled muscles. In fact, he was pretty small. But out of that small stature comes this large, unapologetic, plain-spoken, but yet eloquent with truth, blunt truth-teller with this bold voice. And people would stop and listen. And the non-believers would stop and listen because George had a voice, both audibly and in what he was saying. He actually had a message. He actually had something to say that would grip the very soul of the hearer and engage them, not with wit and wisdom and funny things and stories and illustrations, but with just the very passion that he had for God and the things of God. And so the guys who are used to the monotone, pre-written, button-the-top button, button, penny loafer kind of sermons, they didn't like them, man. They shut the doors. He was being different. Even though he was being effective, it was highly different and, and, and uncouth in their opinion. He was rocking the boat. 
And man, that's something that we see with folks all the time when when they are uncalled to a position, but they end up in the position anyways, then the whole idea of their existence in the position is to maintain the position. And so they don't want to rock the boat, man. Even if the boat is on fire, they don't want it rocking. Just anything, just peace, peace, uh, quell any argument. Let's not do anything to raise any attention because they're just concerned with what they might lose. So it's not a concern with faithfulness towards God. It's not a a concern with what am I going to do with the position that God has put me in? How can I be faithful to him right where I'm at? What has God put me here for? But rather, it is, let's not mess up my benefits package. Don't make me have to get a real job. Don't make me have to get out there and sweat and labor. Don't don't make me have to leave the 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 confines of my cushy swanky office. And so that's happening in the SBC in Nashville. That's happening uh, with all the different denominations. Man, we see no denomination being bold and being truth-telling in this culture of lies in which we live now because the dudes who are in the denominational roles, the guys who have those jobs, are do-nothings. They're just concerned with their retirement account, man. They're checking their IRAs every day, and, and the market's up, the market's down. You know, like They're so much more concerned with the economy than they are with the spiritual soul of our nation that they honestly could care less. Just don't say anything to get me fired. Let's not do anything that that may end up jeopardizing this sweet honeypot job that I've got here because I'm making a pastor's salary while not pastoring anybody. I've just got to write some dumb articles. I've just got to disagree with the dudes on the right. Always punch right, never punch left. Never draw the ire of the lost world. Always just tell the good Christians that they're not good Christians. That's all I've got to do. And so that's what we see. That's what we see come out of Lifeway. That's what we see come out of Christianity Today. That's what we see come out of Relevant. That's what we see come out of all of these gospel coalition and all of these just terrible institutions because they're not led by prophets or priests. They're just led by profiteers and soft men. And that's all it is. And so they shut the doors to Whitfield, but it didn't stop them. He just started preaching to the non-church goers. He turned to the slaves and he would preach to the slaves and actually is the father of, of American, African-American uh, um, you know, Christianity began with George Whitfield and his ministry to slaves. So now once he arrives in America... He arrives in Savannah, Georgia. He's got this heartfelt call for orphanages. You see a man, you know, slaves, prisoners, orphans. I mean, his heart is just broken over the human condition. He wants to see the betterment of all men. And so he actually starts an orphanage called Bethesda, Bethesda Orphanage. And, you know, he he ministers in Georgia, ministers throughout the South. He, he's traveling and preaching, this open-air open preaching, and he eventually makes his way to Philadelphia. Now, Philadelphia is a huge hub of early Americanism. We know this. I mean, we know that it's, it's the birthplace of America's Philadelphia. A lot of our history and, and our culture uh, comes out of Philadelphia. It's a very vital, very key city in American history. 
Now, when he arrives in Philadelphia, he draws the attention of a local printer, a local, you know, a print media businessman named Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin is not even a Christian, but as he's just walking the streets of Philadelphia, just going about his life, he begins to hear this voice and he's drawn to it. And there's this this huge crowd just gathered in the streets to hear this booming voice coming out of this little man. And so Benjamin Franklin is in just enamored. He's in, he's enraptured by this guy's intellect and his wit and his wisdom and his delivery and his fire and his passion. And he actually sets out and he looks at, at just how remarkable Whitfeld's voice is. He starts to measure it out and, and step it off. And he calculates that Whitfeld's voice can be heard for over a mile that he would be able to preach if everybody took up two square feet, that Whitfield would be able to preach to 30,000 people with no microphone, with no speaker system, no lights, no lasers, no no, uh, smoke, no mirrors, no anything, man. Just a man who is on fire for God. That gift that was within Whitfield that he could preach to 30,000 people and be heard in open-air preaching. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. And so Benjamin Franklin is taken by this guy. He is impressed by him. Uh, Just his remarkable intellect, his fire, his passion, his energy. And so he he befriends Whitfield. So now you have George Whitfield and Benjamin Franklin two of the most influential guys in early America, and now they are friends. In fact, Benjamin Franklin houses Whitfield. Whenever Whitfield is in town or whenever he's close by, then he stays in the home of Benjamin Franklin, and Franklin gives him a bed to sleep in, food to eat. He actually ends up financing a lot of his ministry in and around Philadelphia. He finances one of the orphanages that Whitfield uh, would start there in Philadelphia, which today we call the University of Pennsylvania. And so uh, there, that's actually started by Whitfield, and it's financed by Benjamin Franklin because of his belief in the God that Whitfield preaches or in the preaching of Whitfield's God. And so not only does he lodge them, not only does he fund the orphanage, but he also publishes his sermons and articles for free in Benjamin Franklin's quarterly in the in the the press uh you know the press business of Benjamin Franklin here he gives room for Whitfield to publish his articles to publish his sermons every week and so here Benjamin Franklin is evangelizing without even realizing he's evangelizing he's not even a christian In fact, he buys a 7,000-square-foot building in Philadelphia just so that Whitfield has a place to preach. That, I mean, that is crazy. Here you have this guy who is not even a devout Christian, who is just enamored with this man of God that he basically buys him a church. He he gives him a what today would be a digital ministry for free through, through the use of the printing press and utilizing his distribution. 
And then is like letting them stay in the house for free and feeding them. I mean, God is using Benjamin Franklin to further the great awakening without Benjamin Franklin even realizing what he's doing. And so here he continues. So there's this great uh, relationship between the two. And Whitfield has an enormous impact on early America, an enormous impact. They said that the Great Awakening, the first Great Awakening in America, doesn't start until Whitfield lands in Georgia. And it's Whitfield's preaching, along with several others. I mean, we've got, you know, Gilbert Tennant. We've got uh, Jonathan Edwards, you know, uh, you know, sinners in the hands of an angry God. We've got a lot of those guys who are doing this same revivalism kind of preaching or this, you know, not revivalism as we know it today, where it's just emotional and devoid of religion. But what they're doing is they're actually preaching repentance. They're preaching repentance towards God and obedience towards him. And what we see is in conjunction with the Wesley brothers here, Whitfield and the Wesleys end up establishing the um, or having the Methodist church established after their teachings. Um, we see a, a return to spiritual nature in the Americas. So they draw closer together, and it actually, this uh, revival that is taking place draws the colonies closer together, and it opens the door to the American Revolution. That's the revival led to the revolution. America was poised and and nurtured towards the Revolutionary War by the American pulpit. Now, what we see with Whitfield is that this dude was a champ. I mean, 31 years of preaching ministry. He would preach up to 13 sermons a week. And now these weren't your, you know, 15-minute TED Talk sermons of today. These weren't the, you know, tell two stories and four jokes and have a poem and read three verses and just try to be cute, you know, include a story about your dog or something. No, I mean, most of these sermons were hours long. 13 a you know, 13 per week for 31 years. It's estimated that he reached an audience of 10 million souls. And he did it on multiple continents. He preached in Ireland. He preached in Scotland. He preached in England. He preached in the American colonies. I mean, he was all over the British Empire preaching the gospel, preaching the truth of God, and repentance towards him. In fact, he crossed the Atlantic Ocean many times. He spent three years of his life on a boat, just crossing the ocean to preach the gospel. That is amazing, guys. 18,000 sermons, 10 million listeners, 31 years, up to 13 sermons per week, crossing the ocean 21 times, three years of his life in a boat. Man, you know, he has this quote that is so true for his life. He says, I'd rather wear out than rust out. We've heard that. Didn't realize it came from Whitfield, did you? I'd rather wear out than rust out. He said, I'd rather work and just wear myself out and and become broken in my usefulness than to just sit unused and become unuseful 
because of my rustiness. I'd rather wear out than rust out. Now, he did. He died early. He died at the age of 56 in Massachusetts and said that he had been ill for a long time, had this long-running illness, just could not recover, was barely able to walk, but spent his time praying for the strength that he could just get into the pulpit. And there, barely being able to even walk to the pulpit, he stands and preaches a two-hour sermon and then died later that night. He would end up being buried in a crypt under the, under the pulpit in his church, and John Wesley would show up to preach his funeral. Man, what an amazing story. Now, that's the thing, is that in the Great Awakening, it's during this time, pre-revolutionary war, uh, time of the American colonies. And what you saw was this revival of faith towards God, repentance of dead works, and a wanting to, to be obedient towards God. And what that led to was a return to the principles within God's word. And so people started to look at God's word and say, now what does it actually say? Not what have I been told it says, not what stories have been handed down to me. During this time, people read the Bible not only for their religious education, not for just their understanding of God, but also as a source of entertainment, of art, of culture. The, the Bible had a, a plethora of, uh, of applications in the colonies. In fact, once the United States has set up the very first textbook that's ever distributed to the American school system by the United States Congress is the King James Bible. And so this book held a lot of wisdom, a lot of understanding, and the understanding of the American colonies would have centered around the Bible. They would have all understood it at some level, even if they weren't believers, even just in culture, they would have understood it. And we still see that in America today, that even rank, vile, lost, blue-haired, liberal sinners have some knowledge of at least some Bible stories. They don't understand it. They can't explain it. They definitely can't glean any theology off of it, and they do not want to obey it, but it's still in their vernacular. It's in their vocabulary. It's in their daily talk. They reference things, you know, David versus Goliath, you know, all of these kind of uh, uh, sayings ends up in their language just simply because we still have the remnant of that of that basis of being a Christian nation, of being a nation that was founded by Christians for the Christian faith and for the advancement of the kingdom of God. And so what we see is that the American pulpit was the political influence of the day. So even during the Revolutionary War, the English had a, um, had a catchphrase or a nickname that they would call the American pastors. They called them the Black-Robed Brigade because many of them would wear these black robes to preach in and that it was the preaching of the American pulpit that gave the vigor, that gave the fight, that gave the, the conviction to the soldiers on the battlefield. That there they would, and many times the pastors would be the one who led their congregation, the men from their congregation, into war. They would be uh, officers in the Revolutionary Army. 
And so the American pulpit had influence on the political scene because it was a Christian nation. And even at our founding, even though it, you know, there was no state church that was set up as far as a national church, like the Church of England, like the Roman Catholic Church, even though there wasn't a national church, there were state churches. And so many of the colonies ended up saying, we are a Presbyterian uh, state. We are a Baptist state. Uh, you know, that's Rhode Island was was the Baptist state. Um, you know, we are, uh, you know, a, a Anglican state and various ones. There's no prohibition in the Constitution from an individual state from saying this is our state religion. There only is a prohibition from there being a national church because they just undergone the persecution from the Church of England. The Puritans were continuously, um, you know, martyred and, and uh, uh, imprisoned and robbed by the Church of England for not agreeing with Henry VIII's church that he set up because of his infidelity. And so they knew the oppressiveness that can happen from this government control of church. And so they set it up the opposite way to where that the church controls the government through the people. And so we elect Christians into government, and then the Christians are expected to govern as Christians. Now, today, they want to say that you should leave your Christianity at the door and that, you know, faith has no place in public service. But the fact is, friends, is that if there is a position of authority, that position of authority should be filled by a Christian because only a Christian is going to carry out their duties for the glory of God and for the advancement of the people. And so any other would be a denigration of that position. It would be like saying, you know, yeah, <clears throat> I could have this um, sweet, loving Christian woman come babysit my children or a German shepherd. Well, the Christian woman is going to do a much better job. I mean, she's the one that's going to nurture and going to care and going to love and going to promote the good things and watch over the bad, you know, watch out for the bad things. The German shepherd is just a German shepherd. And it's the same thing. If we go into the public sphere, we should have a Christian sheriff. We should have a Christian district attorney. We should have a Christian alderman. We should have Christian city councilmen. We should have Christian governors. We should have Christian senators and state reps. And everybody should be a Christian so that they can govern as Christians, so that we can have a Christian nation. Or else we end up with some really weird stuff. We have people who are reprobate, people whose minds don't work right, people who are all into wickedness, who are then making wicked decisions. Well, now, why is the government making wicked decisions? Because you sent wicked people. Because the good dude said, I don't want to run. I don't want the stress. I don't want the headache. I don't want to do all of this. After all, shouldn't we just sit back and lead a quiet and simple life and, and let other people do those things. Those are hard jobs. I'd rather watch football than to have to worry about city politics or, or, or over the local budget or anything else. And so I'm going to let somebody else do that. 
And then the people who rise up are usually pretty wicked, pretty corrupt, pretty perverse. Because wickedness always seeks power. It always seeks out power. It wants to dominate because it feels inferior. And so it wants to get into a position where it can make you, force you to do things. The Christian's going to govern with liberty and freedom, with conscience, not with force. And that's the thing today that keeps getting talked about with this uh, Christian nationalism, theonomy, mere Christendom. All of these things start to be brought up again because what we see is the way that it has been led, where we have taken this grand experiment that God gave us is to the worst place possible, to the lowest common denominator. Instead of using our constitution as a framework for, for greatness, over time, what happened is the pulpit got cold and the pulpit stopped preaching politics because you can't divorce the pulpit and politics. All you can do is make the pulpit stop talking. And so a lot of people got into a lot of pulpits and didn't say anything. They would talk for 20 or 30 minutes and not say a blasted word about anything that's going on. They would talk about their pet projects. They'd talk about this, this issue or that issue that they were specially keen on and, and these finer details of, of theology, but they wouldn't address the evil of the day. They wouldn't talk about what's happening in the public sphere. They wouldn't fight the cultural war that is going on. And either you will have a godly culture or you will have a godless culture. There's no neutrality. We need, we need to stop with that lie. The, the, the lie of neutrality. Jesus said either you're for me or you're against me. There's no Switzerland. There's no neutral. There's no, I just want to keep my nose clean. I just hope, you know, I hope both teams win. I hope everybody has fun. That's not a Christian idea. Either we are promoting Jesus or we are against him. Either government is promoting Jesus or it's an antichrist government. Either a president is promoting Christ as king or else he is at war with Christ. Either a nation is a Christian nation or they are a godless nation. That's the only two options. Now, it would have been a lot more pleasant if Christ would have said, well, if you're not against me, then you're for me. So that then we could say, well, I'm not actively trying to tear down the kingdom of God. And so therefore, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a good dude. You know, I mean, there, there, would, be some, there would be some room left there to where a bunch of do-nothings could feel good about themselves. But he didn't say that. He said, either you're for me or you're against me. Either you're doing something for me, or if you're sitting still, if you're just trying to hold on, even if you're trying to conserve, be conservative, then you're actually going against me. We should always be pushing the agenda. We should always be pushing the gospel. We should always be pushing repentance. We should always be pushing holiness. We should always be going forward because that's the only time and the only proof that we are for Christ not sitting still, not playing it neutral, not trying to have this secular government. A secular government is an anti-Christ government. So the pulpit has to get back. We have to bring it back. 
If you're sitting in some church with weak preaching, or man, you're listening to the sermons and you have no idea what that dude is talking about, but you're so tired of hearing his testimony, you're so tired of him fake crying on stage at um, at these emotional points, you're tired of the same old lame jokes, then get out. Man, you know, it's amazing. You know, the same people who are complaining that there's no good churches hasn't haven't visited another church in decades. And they think, oh, I got to sit here and keep these doors open. Some doors deserve closing. Sometimes it's time to change. Sometimes you got to say, you know what? I think we're going to go be a part of something good than to sit here and just be a part of nothing. And so, yeah, man, there's going to be churches that close. And guys, listen, it's not going to just be the small churches. There's going to be large churches with big budgets that are going to close. In the future of America, large churches will shut down because they are built on fundraising, they're built on hype, they're built on free labor, uh, exploitation of gifts and talents, um, of promoting uh, talent over character, and they are not churches, they are entertainment centers. And they're going to close because what's happening is the appetite of America is changing. And they're saying, we don't want the box store religion anymore. We don't want the chicken soup for the soul, the Osteen. We, we don't have ears for that anymore. And so what's happening is that there's a true church that's gathering up, that's saying, we just want to know what the Bible says. We just want to know the God of the Bible. And the churches that will teach that, especially if you'll teach it chapter and verse, those churches are going to grow and flourish and be beautiful places where revival starts and where revolution finds its home. But the entertainment centers are going to be exploited for the shallow nothingness that they are. That's why Grace Community is Grace Community. That's why Hillsong is Hillsong. And so... What we have to make sure that we're doing is seeing that the political influence is put back into the American pulpit. Don't hire some, some you know, mid-level manager at AutoZone type pastor who's just going to come in and make sure that everything happens. And you know, Don't hire some dude who's going to come in and try to bring this program that worked three states over. You hire a dude who loves God and who's going to preach like his hair is on fire, who's going to hurt and offend and hope to get fired every Sunday, who's not scared of the deacons or especially the deacons' wives, who's not led by his wife, but rather is just led by the Spirit of God. You put that dude in the pulpit, and you let God do his work. And just get out of the way. So with that... Here we see the great awakening happening with a short little dude who was actually cross-eyed from a nothing family who worked his way through college, who preached to prisoners and slaves, who started orphanages, and who was just bold and unapologetic with the truth. And we see the first great awakening. And we see the birth of the American Revolution, the very, the very 
uh, nation which we're a part of is birthed out of and as a consequence of his ministry and the Wesley's ministry and Jonathan Edwards' ministry and Tennant's ministry and that this revival towards faith is what led it. The next great revival will be led the exact same way. But guys, this is one thing that we have to, and here on parting, as we're leaving, I want to leave you with this. Revival is not a revival of emotion, and it's not a revival of affection. Revival is a revival of obedience. To obey something, you have to know what it is. So it has to be a learning revival. It has to be an obeying revival. It's not about tears and it's not about, it's not about sad faces and it's not about the music. It's not about any of that. It is a return to God being God of all. Anything less than that is just a show. All right, guys. Well, that's it. We're going to wrap up here. Thank you for coming into the woodshed where we tell the truth even when it hurts. Hey, hit the like button, hit the share button for us. That is the way that we spread the word. We have busted through another milestone, 400 listens. So we are very excited about that. And that's all because of you liking it and sharing it, uh, sending it to friends and relatives and coworkers and just helping us get the word out. Hey, if you want to correspond with us, you can always find us on our Facebook page. Many of you have. And and, uh, send us a message, like the page. Uh, We'd be more than happy to answer questions or take topics or ideas for future shows. So if you want to hear something or a take on it, then, hey, let us know and we will get it done. Until next time, friends, this is Brother Jonathan at the Woodshed where we tell the truth even when it hurts.